back to Hash It Out. We're your co-hosts, Judith Adebill and Courtney Duff. Hi, I'm Courtney. Today, we're going to be talking about reproductive justice and the doctor's role in its integrity. Let's get started. Do you want to give some background info, Courtney? Sure, uh, but before I really jump in, I do want to clarify something. Most of what we discuss today will involve Western medicine and doctors. That's not because we think they're evil. It's because they really represent the most, like, immediately relevant set of medical professionals and philosophies that permeate the issues we're discussing. So, to be specific, we're discussing reproductive justice. Most people hear that and think of abortion, which is a part of it. Mm -hmm. But that's not the entire subject. We're going to hone in on some of the other issues today. One will be gatekeeping. Judith, do you want to define that? Yeah, sure. So... Gatekeeping, for people who do not understand what that means, generally refers to trans folk who are blocked from accessing care until they jump through the absurd hoops to prove their identity is valid, which, again, is absurd. Gatekeeping takes other forms through, like, refusing pregnant people the care they request or preventing people from getting sterilization or birth control. That's perfectly correct. Uh, And in talking about sterilization... We're also going to hit the topic of non-consensual sterilization, which I'll usually call forced sterilization. This term refers to doctors permanently sterilizing women through hysterectomies or tubal ligations without their consent. Of course, it's almost always done on marginalized populations. Like Most recently, the news talked about prisoners being non-consensually sterilized, but there's also a very long history of Native American women being sterilized. I've heard of that. And mentally ill women were sterilized at alarming rates in Margaret Sanger's time as well. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely going to touch on the issue of discrimination and anti-blackness. But I want to make sure we talk about the Tuskegee torture, where black men were experimented on by leaving their syphilis untreated, and the pervasive idea that black people feel less p- pain, which is kind of cool because I'm... I would like to to not have any pain. I'm just going to put that out there. Right. Um, Which was propagated by the so-called father of modern obstetrics. So that is a lot of stuff for us to address today. Judith, where do you want to start? Okay. Hmm. You know what? Let's just start with gatekeeping. That's the first thing we kind of touched on. Perfect. I'm totally cool with that. It's going to be hard to encapsulate these issues very neatly in one little box, But I think an important story that we could start with is Jay Calio. Mm -hmm. He sadly passed away last October. Okay, that's that's sad to hear, but what do you think is the most important takeaway from his story? So for people who don't know about Jay Calio, he was an out trans man who was actually denied breast cancer treatment on the basis of his transgender identity. Okay, so can a doctor actually refuse to treat a patient? It depends. There are legally permitted refusals. Some doctors have a history of refusing to treat, like, people who might sue, things like that. But a Texan judge actually ruled in December of 2016, so just a couple months after Jay passed away, that it's permissibly legal to refuse treatment to, these are the two groups he names, trans people or women who have had an abortion, all on the basis that this gender confirmation therapy or abortions violate the doctor's religious beliefs. I know. Okay. So, a lot of people, I guess, would argue that this judge ruled correctly. They would. And it was even based on that really controversial decision that allowed Hobby Lobby to take a religious exemption against ensuring preventative care for women, like birth control. But what do you think? You've mentioned that healthcare is a passion topic Mm -hmm. for you. Do you think this decision was sound? Personally, I would not agree. Um... 
as you'll find out later on in this podcast series. But especially feel like it's a little hypocritical for a doctor to be able to refuse care, seeing as when they become doctors, they take the Hippocratic Oath, which for people who do not know what a Hippocratic Oath is, is that a doctor has to say that they will do no harm. Exactly. And another thing is it's it's a doctor's obligation to treat people who are ill. Like I feel like that's the job description. Right. To refuse someone is just, you're not doing your job. It's like a police officer saying, I'm not going to stop this person because I don't, like, I don't, I don't know. feel just like it. Yeah, just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and in Jay's case, he did eventually find competent caregivers, but he talked a lot before his death about being the trainer to the people giving him care. Yeah, I've heard about that a lot when it comes to trans people. And his recent death was unrelated to the original breast cancer diagnosis, but there have been tons of cases where people didn't get the care they needed, especially because they were trans. Mm -hmm. So, Judith, have you heard of the Harry Benjamin Standards? Actually, I have not. So, to clarify, the Harry Benjamin Standards were a specific set of steps that all trans people had to follow to get the treatment they wanted. Question, are these standards still in use today? Not all of the time. Some clinics opt to follow them. Some clinics opt not to follow them. But the ideas that Harry Benjamin set forward in his standards are really pervasive. Right. So I'm just going to say that these Harry Benjamin standards, they're kind of bizarre to me that there are formal steps that one needs to take. Like, I'm thinking on another level, if a person needs an amputation, would we make them prove that their leg has gangrene or is dead and needs to be you know, amputated. See, exactly. That's the problem. The steps are, like, incredibly rigorous. They depend on a ton of different medical professionals to all agree and somehow verify that a person is trans. We don't do that for any other medical condition. People who are mentally ill can go into a doctor, a general practitioner, and just say, hey, not feeling good. Mm -hmm. And the doctor will give them antidepressants. Not even people who are ill. We see a lot of these kids out here getting prescribed um, Ritalin exactly. and they're ADHD, but they're really not. Exactly. So let me tell you the actual steps that the Harry Benjamin standards require. The first step is a 90-day evaluation period with a gender therapist. Okay. Now, a gender therapist can be any therapist. Any therapist can call themselves a gender therapist. So that could be somebody who's trained in gender issues and has the ability to provide sensitive care Or they could just be a Christian therapist who believes gender dysphoria isn't real. I single out Christian therapists because that's a real problem. Trans kids tell people all the time, well, my parents want me to go to this therapist. They're really Christian. They don't believe gender dysphoria is real. And that's basically how they get them to say, well, your kid's not trans. Okay, but... That's confusing. (laughs) Once you've gone through that 90-day evaluation period, you then have to get an official diagnosis from that therapist. Okay have to spend at least 90 days in their care and then they have to contact an endocrinologist who's a doctor who can provide hormone treatment but you don't get to contact them as the trans person who needs their care your therapist does and then after 90 days and then your real life test begins okay then so what exactly is a real life (laughs) test because i think i've been going through it my whole life and i've never no one's named it that exactly (laughs) i feel like a real life test is like day-to-day living and that's kind of the premise harry benjamin was building it off of but it's when you have to prove your transgender identity by living what they called cross gender okay then which to them (laughs) was dressing in the gender you identify with rather than the one you were assigned at birth 
you've got to do it for at least a year. So some trans people start presenting as the correct gender the moment that they realize that they feel that way. Some transgender people wait years to do it. But the Harry Benjamin set of standards mandates that before you can access any type of surgery, from facial feminizing surgery to breast augmentation or amputation to the full gender confirmation on your genitals, you've got to live that way for a year. Okay, then. So a lot of people will argue that it's very important to experience life as the gender you want to be perceived as. But we just addressed, this is a set of standards that only trans people have to jump through. Right. Have you ever been asked to live as a man just to prove that you were actually a woman? No, but if I could pee standing up, that'd be a great thing to have. See, that's the thing. These people are being told, no, you've got to go through all of this rigorous testing when you and I have never experienced people being like, are you sure you're a woman? Right. The thing is, to pass the real life test, you have to do it for a full year, Mm -hmm. no assistance from anything but hormones, and the most disturbing part, in my opinion, is that, okay, I'm about to directly quote them. You're told to extend the time of your experience, and I quote, humiliation because of your appearance. Think about that. You're basically telling trans people that if cis people mock them because they don't look like the gender they identify as, they need to do it longer. Okay, so someone who's trans probably has already been mocked their whole lives. They finally go to try to make themselves appear how they feel on the inside and if they're mocked for more they have to continue with the process that is perpetuating the mocking exactly and all of the literature i've read about the harry benjamin standards people are always like this isn't an endurance test it's just an attempt to show you what life will be like it literally to me feels like an endurance test it sounds like they're trying to be like no you have to experience all of this humiliation and mocking and violence to prove that you're trans. But for them to say you need to go through the mocking to understand what it's gonna be like, it's kind of ridiculous, because that wouldn't be happening once you are starting to be perceived for who you are on the inside. Exactly. I know that a lot of people are gonna argue that it's vital to be comfortable with those perceptions from cis people, that that mocking is never gonna go away or that humiliation will always be there But we constantly talk about the fact that trans people have an abnormally high rate of suicide. Mm -hmm. It's not because they're trans, it's because of the way that cis people treat them. Society is always ruining folks. Exactly, and hanging that onus of comfort on trans people, rather than just asking cis people to be nice and not cruel to trans people. Not even just nice, just being decent human beings. Exactly, meet the bare standard of decency. Like, let's not spell, do unto others what you want to be done unto yourself, and then not, you know going through with that. Exactly. So I do think that people think that it's valuable to prevent trans people from from accessing care just in case they don't want to transition later. But like we just addressed, cis people are always assumed to be right about their identity right off the bat. Mm -hmm. We have a formalized idea of who knows best when it comes to health care. Trans people are never trusted that way. So I see a lot of parallels in the situation to what happens with pregnant people in our society. Oh, absolutely, I do. I think there's a lot to be said about the commonalities. So what did you think about Kimberly Turbin's story that I shared with you? That was disturbing, right? It was disturbing. I had never heard of the case prior to researching it, and I thought it was ridiculous what was what, what happened to her, essentially. So for people who don't know um, Kimberly Turbin's name or didn't hear about it 
the situation. Um, she made news in 2013 because there was a videotape showing her in labor, begging her doctor to not give her an episiotomy. Yeah. Did I say that correctly? You did. <laughs> so the video shows him doing it anyway. Okay. Just to jump in real quick, I do want to explain what an episiotomy is. Go right Essentially, ahead. doctors will give a routine cut to the entrance of the vagina to ease the passage of the baby during labor. The thing is, this is a routine move by some doctors. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The problem is <coughs> that there's evidence that episiotomies shouldn't be routine and should be judged on a case-by-case basis. There's also the argument that women should be allowed to decline an episiotomy if they don't believe it will help. Because obviously it's their bodies. Like, I should be able to judge if I think I can handle my birth. I do agree with that. But don't you think a doctor should make the decision? I value autonomy, but so many Mm -hmm. people are going to argue that the doctor will know what's best. Well, yeah... So I do understand that doctors do go to medical school and they have a strong understanding of the best practices. But what it comes down to what doctors believe versus the evidence, like... Like how the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, like what they said about episiotomies. Yeah, so the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, (laughs) blessed be to those who can say that word, or ACOG, uh, they released a statement back in 2006 discouraging the routine or preventative use of episiotomies because it benefited neither mother nor baby. So I think we need to recognize that personal choice will come into play and autonomy needs to trump the doctor's desire to do a procedure not based in evidence. So if this organization that is well known and they're saying that this practice is outdated and not necessary. Exactly. They examined all of the evidence that we have for and against episiotomies and that's what they found. And Judith, I do follow you, but I think we need to take just a second can we address the people who are going to argue that this validates the anti-vaccination camp? Right. Don't, would not want to do that. So to not get too off track, um, but when we're talking about vaccinations, vaccinations have proven benefits in facts, whereas, for example, episiotomies do not. That is such an important distinction to make. Vaccinations have a body of evidence that shows they're safe, that shows they're mm-hmm. necessary. I mean, we have more people alive today because of vaccinations. Exactly. The reason that those diseases don't get contracted so much anymore is because of vaccinations. And they'd be actually gone by now if more people would just, you know, get them. Exactly. We wouldn't have measles outbreaks. (laughs) That is another episode. I do also want to point out when a procedure is optional, like an episiotomy, it is a matter of personal choice or bodily autonomy. And bodily autonomy means we get to determine what happens to our bodies. And you can't claim that on behalf of someone else, even your children. That's literally the antithesis of autonomy. But let's get back on track. Mm -hmm. Okay, so people would assume that Kimberly Turbin's case is an isolated one. But let's provide other examples. There are, like, so many we could address right now. Right? I think the most important one, or really just the most interesting one, is Mm going to be Jennifer Goodall. So I know you and I have chatted about her at length, but I'm going to explain for our listeners real quick. Go ahead. So Jennifer Goodall is a woman who delivered three children by cesarean section. It's a C-section. That's what we all know it as. Yep. But on her fourth pregnancy, she wanted to try what we call a VBAC. That's a vaginal birth after cesarean. She explained at length to her doctors, to the media, on Facebook, that she would never reject a forced C-section if it were necessary. She just wanted the chance to attempt a vaginal birth to go into labor naturally, 
to see if her body was capable of it. Which, if you've done research on, a lot of women have done this after having multiple C-sections. Absolutely. It's not abnormal for women to ask for VBAC. I completely agree. One of the things that we know is that VBACs can be more safe mm -hmm. than a repeat cesarean because of the risks associated with them. Yep. But in Jennifer Goodall's case, her hospital literally sent her a letter and it said that if she were to enter the hospital for this birth, they would give her a C-section. And again, I'm quoting here, with or without consent. Mm -hmm. And that if she didn't consent to a C-section, they were gonna call CPS. And Goodall did eventually have a cesarean delivery with her fourth child, but she was given the opportunity to labor and try a vaginal birth. And then she consented to surgery when it became apparent that it was necessary. See, what I'm seeing from this story, which is I think is kind of ridiculous, is the fact that she never said she wouldn't have a C-section. She wasn't trying to put her child in harm. She just wanted to try to have a vaginal birth to see if it was possible. Exactly. Her doctors refused to even acknowledge her desire to try and assumed that they knew the exact necessity of the situation. But if you look at the evidence, if you look at the way that women have labored in the past, mm -hmm. VBACs are safe. Right. And the thing is, as long as you're attempting a VBAC in a hospital, or even if you're attempting a VBAC with a midwife present, you can get taken to the operating room with no danger. You right. can move straight to a C-section and it doesn't harm you. All she wanted was the ability to try yeah. and her doctors refused to even give her a chance. Right. So there's a lot of ways that doctors withhold care, but like Goodall, they can force care on people as well. That's a really important point to make. We've talked a lot about how doctors refuse to treat people, how doctors withhold care, but the thing is there have been way too many instances where people were given care they didn't need mm -hmm. or turned into experiments essentially. So I wanna hit on the Tuskegee torture. Right. For people who aren't aware, from about 1932 to about 1972, there was a cohort of black men infected with syphilis and never given treatment. Mm -hmm. But they were under a doctor's care the entire time. Which is ridiculous. Exactly, they were part of a study without being told that they were part of a study. They were told they were getting treatment for what the doctors called bad blood, which I think has some racial implications in there but they weren't getting treatment for the syphilis that was ravaging their body. And we all know what advanced syphilis can do. It can mm -hmm. ruin your brain, it can destroy your body from mm -hmm. the inside out with blisters and lacerations. And the doctors watched this happen to these black men. They were just guinea pigs in their little game of advancing in the art of medicine. Yeah, exactly. And that's a pattern that we've seen, especially on black people the so-called father of modern obstetrics actually gave black women surgeries with no anesthesia. Oh God. Exactly, he believed that black women didn't feel pain. Okay, I, and, I wish I didn't, but in this instance, give me all the pain meds you can. Exactly, like it would be so cool if we didn't experience pain as women, or in your case as a black woman, but like, if I'm going into surgery, please put me under. Right, when I got my wisdom teeth taken out, they're like, oh my do gosh. you want laughing gas or do you just want general anesthesia? I'll say, bring on the laughing gas. Yes. I want to be asleep. That's the thing. They weren't even given the option. The That's doctors ridiculous. just decided that they knew what was best. So the person that we credit for founding the field of obstetrics and gynecology literally cut black women open with no pain medication or anesthesia. Let's go back to the fact that doctors be going against their Hippocratic Oath. Maybe there should be some sort of legal 
platform for that. Exactly. <laughs> That's why the Institutional Review Board now exists. So as college students, we may have come up on that before. It's called the IRB. As students or researchers mm -hmm. or staff here, if you're going to do a study, you got to get IRB approval. Right. I know in Native American studies, my professor has constantly mentioned that the IRB training for Native studies is literally like 150 different modules, while animal training is like five. And it's because people of color, they've been experimented on constantly and we need all these protections. Right. I think that's a good point to segue into the issue of forced sterilization. Mm -hmm. So for people who aren't aware, forced sterilization has been going on pretty much as long as we've known how to sterilize people. In Nazi Germany, they used radiation. In America though, the IHS, which is Indian Health Services, they paid doctors to sterilize women without their consent or knowledge. That's, that's horrific. It is. Basically, it could be dentists, doctors, anybody. If a native woman went in for, say, to get her wisdom teeth out and right. they knocked her out, she might wake up with no uterus and have no idea until she wanted to have kids later. God, no. Mm -mm. It was basically their way of controlling the population of native people. Which is... It's just disgusting. They already did it with those blankets back in the day, and now they're just trying to force you not to have kids, period. Exactly. People, I get so sick and tired of hearing the anti-abortion rhetoric that calls it a modern holocaust or the lost generation, because that's the thing. We already have a lost generation. Of Native people and of <laughs> mentally ill women. Even in Puerto Rico, we did our birth control studies there. And women died. Women had blood clots that killed them. Women killed themselves because of the mood changes. Oh, Lord. And then a, a study of male birth control pops up a couple of years ago, and they had to terminate it because men wouldn't handle the side effects. They kept dropping out. Let's just say that uh, since they already know that women have to take care of those things, they're just like, it's fine. Yeah. I don't have to deal with this. They think they don't have to worry about it because women have already got it handled. Maybe and someone needs to, like, throw away all the... Um, chemical <laughs> variations of female birth control yes. and have only the male left and we'll see what happens. Exactly. <laughs> we'll see what happens to the population and how quickly I could get sterilized at 25 even though no doctors are willing to do it yet. Mm. So I know that's a lot of info that we've just dumped. The forced sterilization, the Tuskegee torture, it's a lot of stuff to address in one episode and we can never really get into all of it. Yeah, we're going to so, have there's so many intersectionalities of what happens with society and race relations that you it can never changes. fully yeah, you can yeah. never fully talk about a topic without going off topic. Yes. We will have some links to studies, articles and things like that that will help you get a better understanding of the mm -hmm. topic than we could give today. Yep. So, Courtney, I know you're really into natural care like and doulas and all of that jazz. I don't know what's in that bracket. Yeah. But do you think there are they're the better option overall than going to see a doctor who generally believes they know more than you because of their education? I mean, honestly, I can't say that midwifery and doulas just make everything better because they have flaws too, and that needs to be addressed as well. Okay. Before I jump in, though, I want to define the topics for people. So midwifery is what we think of when we think of midwives. That's usually women who are trained to deliver babies, provide well women care, and things like that. Doulas are a much more, like, tricky topic for people because they don't really know what we're talking about. A doula is defined as basically a person, again, usually a woman, although but I did interview the first male doula. He was very nice. He was a black man from Canada, actually. 
it's because he's Canadian. Exactly. They're just nice overall. Yep. But so what a doula does, they provide emotional, physical, mental, all kinds of support to a laboring person. Mm-hmm. They're more like your labor assistant. They're yeah. like the person who coaches you through your birth. They're the ones who hold your hand and hold your leg. Exactly. <laughs> if you've ever heard Ali Wong stand up, she has a great joke about doulas. I love her. I do Wait, too. is that the one where she was pregnant on Netflix? Yes. It's called it's like hilarious. Baby Cobra now or something. Yes. Yeah. She has a hilarious joke about doulas because doulas are predominantly in pop culture white women who are very crunchy hippie like oh like quinoa and kale exactly but i hate quinoa <laughs> i do too <laughs> but midwives and doulas definitely have a role in healthcare and i think mm-hmm. they're very important i personally not to go too much off topic yeah. but when i think about midwives i it's like a dying art that needs to come back cuz like, exactly. when i think about the historical aspect of it i just can think about how doctors in the late 1800s, early 1900s, yeah. were forcibly trying to get midwives out of their jobs so that yeah. they could take over that practice and make money off of it. Exactly. It's, we need to bring that back. And a more affordable, healthier, and cleaner option exactly. than going to the hospital, which, I mean, I like hospitals just fine, but can't deny there's a lot of people and a lot of germs. Exactly. A lot of infections. Yeah, and midwives are making a resurgence, but... I think this is a good place to start talking about why midwives aren't unilaterally better. Mm -hmm. One of the main things I want to address with midwives is there was a controversy recently with the Midwives Alliance of North America, or MANA. Mm -hmm. They did an update to their language where they use gender neutral language because as we know, trans men can give birth, trans women cannot. Mm -hmm. There's the issue of the fact that Birth does not look like a solely female domain anymore. Right. And it never really has, but we always excluded those people from the topics. Right. I know a trans man who has two beautiful children that he gave birth to, and he faced a lot of these issues from the midwife he had selected because she just didn't understand his point of view. Mm-hmm. He was able to find a midwife who gave him very good care, but when Mana updated their language to reflect that not every person who gives birth is a woman and not every woman will give birth, midwives revolted. Yeah. They wrote an open letter in response. Basically, this is how I understand their argument. They believe that by removing the feminine pronoun, she, her, and hers, from the discussion of birth, we are essentially removing the feminine power of birth from the topic and we're cutting ourselves off from nature, and we're harming and minimizing the role of women in this role. Question. Yeah. The people who wrote this letter, were they predominantly white women? Overwhelmingly so. Because when I think of cutting yourself off from nature, that has nothing to do with language. It has to do with nature and how you commune with nature. So, I don't know. It's like they're trying to hold on to this niche for themselves yeah. and it's like it's a 20 it's 2017 it's a 21st century and for you to f- be focusing over language instead exactly. of focusing on the women or trans men who need your care yep. you're I'm just gonna say it they're having a hissy fit <laughs> and that's the thing it does feel like they just want it to be exclusive so that they can retain that power especially since if you're a white woman what, exactly. When we, like, when we think about who's communing with nature, it's not yeah. generally white women. So how can exactly. I... One it reminds crazy. me of a pendulum. 
where we're trying to bring it in balance for equity and equality, but we're pushing it way too far to the point that we're excluding right. trans people, queer folk. Like I did a doula training through Dona International, which is okay. the largest certifying body of doulas. It was in Memphis, Tennessee, which was a mistake. <laughs> because when I got there, all of the women and all of the women were talking about, well, if you don't feel comfortable serving lesbians, you don't have to. If you don't feel comfortable serving people who are going to vaccinate their kids, you don't have to. This is ridiculous. I was so <laughs> agitated throughout the entire training because I am a queer woman who never wants children. I want to help mothers. That's right. how I got into the field. But they were so exclusive. They wanted to keep that segregation alive because they cared more about the exclusivity of their product than they did about helping women. I feel like the whole purpose of their job is just to be helping women give birth. Exactly. It shouldn't matter if they're a lesbian. It shouldn't matter about their orientation. Yes. It should be about, are they pregnant? Does yes. a child need to come out in nine months? Yes. Okay, cool. Let's get it done. Let's get it exactly. this child out safely, and we can all go back to our lives. It's not like they have to, I don't know, be a part of these people's lives exactly. after this. So if you're not comfortable, you're performing a service. Yeah. Like, when I go to McDonald's, if I see someone there I don't <laughs> like, or someone who has, I don't know, say if I was against tattoos and yeah. ear gauges, I'm not going to be like, I don't want you to serve me. Or as an African-American woman, just because I hear racist comments does not mean I can, I'm allowed to forcibly not serve you. Yeah. So in their position, they're not, they don't have to connect with your lives. Exactly. They don't have to be a part of what you, like how you live so they should just i don't know shut up and do their job yes and that's Who's the gonna problem. say that <laughs> that's the problem with doula work that always gets to me is that they do want their service to be an exclusive product so donut international's whole thing their motto or whatever you want to call it they say their mission is to provide a doula to every woman who wants one right that's not how it plays out in every training, in every group, in every conversation I've attended, doulas insist that even I, who have not attended a birth, need to charge premium prices. They say $600, $900. For yeah, what? To go and attend the birth. They even say put into your contract how long you will attend. And I'm like, the woman can't control if she goes 48 hours. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's not a doula for every woman who wants one. It's become a doula for every woman who can afford one. I feel like I find it very interesting when people put certain terminologies in their mission, yes. but they don't go ahead with it. It's just like um, in some of the classes I look in, I take on campus, when we look at missions of prisons and oh, jails, yeah. and they say rehabilitation, but rehabilitation does not happen in this country. Not uh, yeah. It's about how society and the people who are giving you money are exactly. looking at it. Like, this as well. <laughs> literally, there are studies that show that doula attended births save Medicare money. But how can a Medicare patient afford $600, $900, right. $1,200 for a doula package? Okay. At this level, they're going to be working themselves out of a job. Yep. Okay. So <laughs> all of that said, you come from a healthcare perspective. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the solution lies? So I'm going to say that on both sides from what we've talked about, a lot of things can be improved. For sure. Personally, I do like the idea of a midwife or a doula. They need to reduce their prices because they're not getting my money in For the future. Sure. But um, when it comes to doctors and the traditional form of healthcare that people think about, 
Um, I think doctors need and they should listen to their patients and not just assume they, that they know what is best without the explicit consent of their patient. Yes. So informed consent is defined as asking a patient before performing a healthcare intervention. It is not allowing a patient to make every decision, but giving them the information they need to choose the care they want. Okay, I'm going to interject one more time. Okay. Going back to pregnancy, there's a phrase used called the uh, cascade of interventions. Mm -hmm. It's because when a woman enters a hospital to give birth, they're immediately started on Pitocin, which makes their cramps worse and their contractions harder, which gives them an epidural, which makes it harder for them to push, so they need this, that, and the other. Okay. What is the purpose of Pitocin? I've heard about it, but I just didn't know that it was maybe not medically necessary. Yeah, so the thing is, when a woman enters labor naturally, usually it takes quite a while to get to the point of the second stage where they begin to be like really get the baby pushed down and ready to come out. Mm-hmm. Most hospitals don't wanna wait that long. Right. So they give them a drug called Pitocin, which basically makes their contractions even more powerful So a contraction that might have been bearable before Mm -hmm. would not be bearable with Pitocin because it's so incredibly painful. Okay, let me write that down because I'm giving birth at some point in life and I do not want to be given that drug. And that's the thing. (laughs) A lot of doctors will be like, hey, do you want a drug to make your labor go faster? But they don't explain. They don't explain any of it. They don't say Pitocin will make your contractions more painful, which may mean that you will need an epidural to feel tolerance in Mm -hmm. this way. And the epidural will make it more hard for you to know when to push. And or then, the possibility of paralyzation because you know exactly. they, they nick anything back there. But then even if the epidural goes well, they then might have to do a forceps or vacuum delivery, right. which is when they assist the baby coming out because the mom can't push. Or if you have an epidural, the baby basically has jet lag. <laughs> the baby is like slowed down because of the medicine in it. Right. So that's the thing. They need to be explicit and explain what these interventions do. Yeah, a doctor is, in my opinion, is supposed to be a wealth of knowledge for a patient to be able to understand what exactly is going wrong with them. Exactly. So for them to just not give out exact information or to just withhold it and do whatever they want, I feel like it's it's kind of disgraceful to yeah. the practice. Yeah, for sure. Um, like, um, let's go back to Jennifer Goodall. Okay. She, um, so she was threatened by her health care provider, like we said earlier, and... Um, for, so she was threatened for wanting the opportunity to have a vaginal birth for her fourth pregnancy. They threatened to report her to the Department of Children and Family Services and perform a cesarean on her with or without her consent if she were to ever enter their hospital while pregnant. The thing is, Jennifer wasn't asking for anything radical, okay? She wasn't asking to chug vodka in the As delivery room. Um, she just wanted to have a say in how she birthed her latest child, and they belu- believed that they knew what was best for her to the extent of wanting to report her to child welfare authorities. And that's the thing. It's literally, it's not like she is doing anything rattle, radical, dramatic, unsafe. Right. Like I said, she's not chugging vodka. Although she's I not, totally would. She's not trying to do drugs except maybe get an epidural. Exactly. She's just trying to live her life and birth her child in the safest way possible right yeah so with not assuming what's best doctors also need to uphold the oath they took to do no harm the hippocratic oath yeah and as a person who appreciates having a doctor if i can't trust my doctor my health is in jeopardy 
I agree. I have gone through periods of not being insured for most of my life, then small periods of being insured. And the thing is, doctors have a tendency to not listen. Mm -hmm. I have experienced so many times. One time I went to MedCheck, which Mm -hmm. is one of those urgent care facilities, and I went to the south side one. And when I got in, I have a bulging disc in my back. Makes walking pretty painful when it starts to flare up. And I know the first thing I need that's going to kick it almost immediately, round of steroids. Nothing dramatic. Doctors never listen when I tell them that this has been a problem my entire life. And I know how to fix it. I walked into this med check and a doctor, like the nurse practitioner took all my info and the doctor came in and said, so Courtney, you think you might need some steroids for your back? And I was like, yeah. I don't think that's usually I know. What, well, that's the thing. I was like, yeah, that's usually what helps. But if you think there's anything else, I'm uh, more than happy to hear it. And she was like, oh no, if you know that steroids usually help, why don't we try steroids first? I cried. I cried in the doctor's office because for the first time a doctor had listened to me. That's great. Exactly. And if doctors could just do that for their patients, we'd have so much better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of reminds me, if any of you guys are familiar with BuzzFeed, like I am, um, also if you're familiar with the Try Guys, they're like my favorite people on BuzzFeed, um, one of them actually posted a video in the last couple of weeks about having an auto... Um, immune disease and how he'd been going to the doctor for years and they never could help him. Yeah. And they always just kind of assumed that he was kind of faking it or something like that. So go try watching some of those videos. That's not the first or the last one I've seen on BuzzFeed. Yeah, we'll uh, make sure to put a link to that in the description. But unfortunately, when we're talking about this topic, we can't have all the answers and we don't have all the answers. Judith is right. We don't have all of the solutions and we never will. Okay, so unfortunately, we've been having so much fun, but we're coming up on time as it is. That's true. So, of course, we do want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Hash It Out. And like we said, we'll never be able to hit every single thing in one episode. So we'll ask you to continue the conversation from here. So what did we miss? What questions do you have for us? What do you think the solutions are? You can always find me and Judith on social media. We monitor the Social Justice Scholar pages. So you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at sjed underscore IUPUI, on Facebook as Social Justice Education IUPUI, or use our hashtag. We're going with the hash sign and then just the full title of the podcast, Hash It Out. Exactly. So all of those details plus articles about the topics we discussed today and possibly some videos are available in the episode description below. Let us know what you think. All right, that's it for today, y'all. Thanks for listening, and we hope to hear from you soon. Bye.